Hey, if you, um, if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open them up and turn to Psalm chapter 24. And this is where we're going to be reading from this morning. Um, I'm going to go ahead and, and read this, and then we'll dive right in. So you listen to the word of the Lord. It says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Let's pray that the Lord would shine through his word. Our God, this morning, we say thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this passage, for this chapter in in your word that you have given us. And you've given it to us because you love us and you desire to be in relationship with us. You desire to communicate to us. I'm excited to preach this psalm because I believe it gives us a clear picture of your plan to redeem us because of the perfect righteous life that Jesus lived and the death that he died in our place. So this morning, would you please open our eyes and our ears to behold you and to receive you this morning? We pray this in Jesus' name, our Lord. Amen. Well, I want you to take a moment and just think with me for a second. Just take a moment. Because... People constantly ask questions. That's kind of the the meat of what we do all day. If you really think back on what you've been doing from the time you woke up to now, it's you've been asking yourself questions. So I do this, you do this, we do this, and we do this all day. And it isn't super noticeable because usually the questions that we ask, they're pretty mundane and basic. They don't have huge effects on us. Stuff like, what color shirt should I wear today? Or what shoes go with these pants that I'm wearing, right? Do I really need to take a shower? (laughs) My junior high boys, the answer is yes. (laughs) Yes, you do. What should I have for lunch? It's just basic questions like that. But then we find ourselves asking questions that seem more consequential, right? That, That have a greater weight and greater depth to them. And they tend to be questions that concern our security, our future. We find ourselves asking the questions about what's going to happen in the future. What am I going to do with this diagnosis that feels so grim? Or am I going to have enough money saved for finances for the future? You might feel like you have the need to ask questions about where you're going to go to college. So all these things, right? Will we have enough money saved for retirement? What college should I consider? Or, on my mind, can 
I afford the gas to drive home today from church? And the answer is probably not, right? Many of you have been asking that, right? This is crazy. As stressful as that can be is seeking those questions because those ones, those, those ones that seem to, have to be super deep and consequential, right? They, they can cause a lot of stress. We're often not, we find ourselves asking those types of questions, but, but what David is telling us here is those aren't really the right answer, the right questions that we should be asking, right? I'm not saying it's wrong to ask those questions. Hear, hear me right. But those aren't the ultimate questions. And David, in our psalm this morning, he's going to be helping us see what the ultimate question is. And it's this. Who can be in a right relationship with God? Or to summarize it as David does in our passage, who can approach this God? This is the question that the entire Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, sets out to answer. This is the problem. This is the conundrum. This is the big question that everybody has all throughout Scripture. Who can approach God? And so David comes to this question after he spends some time reflecting on who it is God is and the power and the majesty that he possesses. So in order to understand where that question comes from, and why he's asking it. We want to look at these first two, the first two verses. He says this, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. That's the first part of, of verse 1. So other translations say, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. David is saying that all creation, every square inch, rightfully belongs to the one who created it. Every tree, every rock, every speck of dust, the plains, every mountain, all the lakes, seas, and oceans, it all belongs rightfully to God, the God of Israel, the Lord. By the way, when you see in your English translation, Lord capitalized, all the letters capitalized, if you didn't, if you didn't pay attention and see this before, when you see that in your English translation, that means that they're talking about Yahweh, the God of Israel. So just, just so we're clear, they're talking about God. So that is what belongs to God, the world and everything that belongs in it. Now, the second half of this verse, he tells us who belongs to God. So we get the what, now we get the who. He says the world and those who dwell therein. He created and owns not only the world and all the physical matter around us, but he also owns and is sovereign over all those who live in it. That's you and me. He created, he owns, and is actively in charge of you and me, along with every person ever born and who has ever walked the face of the earth. We belong to him. You see, the world... And even us in this very room, we find ourselves at times bucking up against this concept. So it comes out in things like this. We don't want to be owned by God. So we say stuff like, you don't own, own me. You can't tell me what to do. We live with this attitude all the time. That, depend, that, that, that seems to be our attitude about what God wants us to, wants us to do with our money. You don't own me. You can't tell me what to do with my money. That is our attitude about showing up to worship sometimes. You can't tell me what to do. 
When, when we abuse things like drugs or alcohol, that's us saying, you can't tell me what to do. I'm not hurting anybody except maybe myself. You don't own me. You can't tell me what to do. It's most obvious right now when you turn on the TV and you see our culture's view of sexuality and what they're saying over and over again is you don't own me. You can't tell me what to do. It's me. It's my body. I can do with, with it what I please. But on the other hand, Christians have always found great comfort in the concept that God does, in fact, own us. And he can tell us what to do because we are his and we are his created beings that belong to him. See, the Heidelberg Catechism is a question and answer book that helps us understand the teachings of Christianity. And so the first question of the Catechism is this. He says, what is your only comfort in life and in death? And the answer isn't that we are truly independent, autonomous people. That can't be told what to do. Neither does the answer to the question have anything to do with who is president of the United States of America or who is in control over the House or the Senate. You see, a Christian ought to be trained not to look to those things for comfort and security. But listen to what the Catechism says. It says the answer begins with these profound words. It says that I, my comfort comes from this, that I am with my body and soul, both in life and in death, am not my own. Those are the first few words of that answer. And Christian, you are not your own. Psalm 24 tells us who we truly belong to. We belong to God. And this is because he is the one who created us. And so David is reflecting on creation as he is opening his eyes. And he is looking around him. And he is observing the glory and the majesty and the holiness of God, the creator. And he's seeing his creative power. And what does he do? He goes right to verse 2. And he says this. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. What he's saying there is that he has creative power to bring order to chaos. You see, when he's referring to the seas and to the, to the, to the waters, to the rivers, what, that, that's, a, that's a metaphor in, in Hebrew poetry that is saying there's a lot of chaos going on around us and God takes that chaos and says, I'm going I'm to bring order to it. And he does. So David is looking around and saying, look at all this order he's brought to chaos. Look at everything that he has done. And I think that David is saying that God, the creator, is the one that we can trust and find comfort and security in. See, we can take great comfort in the fact that we don't control the chaos that is happening around us. Indeed, we can't. And we weren't designed to control the chaos around us. But we can trust in him with our lives because of this. Because he is the creator of all things. So this, this reflection on God's creation and, and his creative power and his majesty and his holiness then leads to this one great question that he asks in verse 3. He says, Who can ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? So in summary, in other words, he's saying, Who can approach this God? This God who is sovereign with creative powers. Who can approach him? Who can stand before him? 
You see, David, he immediately sees a problem after his reflection on God's creative power and God's holiness, God's otherness. He sees immediately that we are not holy. And I want us to hear and understand the angst and the desperation with which David asked this question. Because this psalm was written to commemorate the Ark of the Lord coming to Jerusalem after David had just become king of Israel. So the Ark of the Lord was something that represented the presence of God. So this event was a statement that the presence of the Lord dwelt with the king now in Jerusalem. Kind of in a sense saying, look, this is where the king reigns and we got God on our side. He's right here. Here's the Ark. That was the plan. But this event of the commemoration, right? This, this event of them, of them bringing the ark into the city of Jerusalem wasn't without some very serious complications. See, so God had given the Israelites rules and procedures to follow when dealing with the ark because God wanted to communicate and ingrain in his people the magnitude of his holiness. One of those procedural rules was that the ark was only to be carried by specially approved Levite priests who were to carry the ark with poles. So there was supposed to be this group of Levites, specially approved, to put poles through the rings and to carry it a special way in order to keep the ark from falling and, and being jostled and being mistreated. So here's what David did and the people of Israel. Instead, they built a wagon. I mean, it was a new wagon, but they built a wagon. They didn't follow the rules, the procedures. They put the ark on the wagon, and that wagon was guided on a super rocky road, as you can imagine, by two brothers who were named Ahio and Uzzah. They were two sons of Abinadab, who Abinadab was the guy who actually kept the ark uh, because previously it had been stolen by the Philistines, the enemy of, of God's people. This was 20 years before this event. And so they, they brought it back, Israel got it back, and it just kind of camped with Abinadab at his house for quite a while, for 20 years, okay? So take a look at what happens here in this processional, where David and the people had decided to take this security of the ark into their own hands. It says this, 2 Samuel chapter 6, And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the ark had stumbled. Okay, so they're partying, right? They're dancing. God is with us. The ark is here. It's coming into this great city. This is a great occasion. Uzzah realizes because of the rocky road, uh-oh, it's falling off the wagon. He puts his hand out. And the anger of the Lord, he says, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. What? I can't help but feel kind of angry every time I read that. Are you serious? God, all he was trying to do was prevent the ark from falling. That doesn't seem right. Do you share some of that confusion? Maybe some of that anger? 
Because David did. Because in chapter 6, verse 8, it says that David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. So David's response wasn't, okay, good, that's good. No, his, his response was exactly what I just said. What? You got to be kidding me. He's angry. I think I'm struck alongside with David with anger because I instinctively know that I have done way worse than just simply touch a box that represented the presence of God. You see, this, this passage reminds me of how truly disobedient I am and how I actually deserve death, not blessing from God, because of my sin. I resonate with David's feeling, his reaction. This event is the event that causes David to ask the question, well, then who can approach God? If you're going to strike Uzzah down for touching the box, then who can possibly stand before God? Do you see the angst and the desperation behind his voice? And then David gives us the answer. He begins the answer in verse 4. He says, He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. There's the person who can approach God. So this person then is perfect. One without sin. Does that rub anyone else the wrong way? Well, it does me. Because it's not describing me, I'll tell you what. I'm ruled out. Maybe have you, some, some of you think you're just totally knocking this requirement out of the park. You got clean hands. So that means that you haven't sinned physically against God. You have a pure heart. That means that everything you say and do, everything you think is perfectly righteous and never comes from bad or wrong motives. The person who does not lift up his soul to what is false, you in all your life worship the one true and holy God. You are always giving him your all. Everything you do, you're just giving it all to him. Not likely. That doesn't describe anyone I know. You don't swear deceitfully. Have you ever lied? You ever just said, oh, it's only a white lie? Some of you might be getting really frustrated at me right now. And this is understandable. Because as I was preparing, I found myself thinking, man, this could feel very frustrating. Because we're looking at these requirements and, going, and asking the same question. Well, then fine. Who? Who? Who are you saying can do it? Right? So you're saying no one can approach God? And my answer to that question after studying this passage is correct. <laughs> so let's pray and uh, have the band come back up. <laughs> no. But yes, correct. No one can approach God on their own merit. And this is because the scriptures say in Deuteronomy chapter 4, Verse 24, the scriptures say that God is a consuming fire. Imagine this with me. If you were planning on going to a barbecue, I see a few of you uh, in white shirts today, okay? Just pure white shirts. We have two people on stage with white shirts today. It was awesome. We had Andrew and Blake. And I'm just looking at those white shirts glowing, and I'm thinking, I can't wait to talk about their white shirts today. <laughs> so imagine Andrew and, and Blake, uh, go, you know, over here and over here, right? They go to a barbecue, 
and they're just so excited to be eating this barbecue. And, and they, they get their piece of chicken, and they take their first bite, and that barbecue sauce just drips down on that shirt. That shirt now is stained. It's dirty. They know that. Isn't that super frustrating, by the way, when that happens? Oh, come on! I just got here. But when that chicken was on the fire, when that chicken was over the coals and it had the barbecue sauce on it and that barbecue sauce dripped down into the coals, do you think the coals were stained and dirty then? No. What happened? The coals burst into flame and consumed the barbecue sauce. Consumed it. In the same way, God is a consuming fire that incinerates any impurity that comes close to him. Our sin does not stain him or make him dirty. His holiness consumes our sin like fire. So therefore, anyone who comes into his presence must be holy. We must be the person who David, who David describes clean, pure, or else we would be consumed by God's holiness and our sin. And remember, this is the big question the entire Bible sets out to answer. And Jesus chimes in. He chimes in on this while he's preaching the Sermon on the Mount. He says this, and it's recorded in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. He says this, You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. You heard him right. And I think Jesus actually means what he says. I don't think there's any, there's any kind of secret to understanding this. I think he means this plainly. See, I, you're understanding what he's saying if you're just seeing this and, and still wondering the question. Well, fine. Still, that doesn't describe me. Who can stand before this God? You see, in Jesus' day, there was a group of religious leaders. They were called the Pharisees. This group, they had a tendency to think that they were doing just such a great job at keeping the law of God. They thought that the things that they did were making them and keeping them perfect. They thought that they could stand before God because of their holiness and their righteousness. But Jesus says this, and he actually said this earlier in the chapter. I know I jumped ahead here to kind of give you what Jesus says, and he's telling them and everybody listening. But he said this earlier in the chapter. He said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. He didn't come to do away with them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So he did not come to lower the standards of God. He didn't come to lower the standards of God. It's not what he did. He says in verse 20, For I tell you, unless the righteousness, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So here are the people that saw themselves as people who met the requirements that David lists out in the psalm. The Pharisees were the type of people who, who looked at that and said, okay, clean hands, got it, check. They had ceremonial laws that protected that for them. They said, a pure heart, okay, at least nobody else sees what's going on in here, so I could at least just fake it in front of everybody, check. Clean heart. Don't worship what is false, check, got it. Never lied check. They thought they were doing these things. 
and the people around them, I'm sure. I can imagine they were observing them and they probably thought, wow, these people are holy. They're really, they're, they're also, they're, they're doing a great job and we can see that. You see what's going on when Jesus says this, when he says that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, unless that, you got to be better than them, he's saying. I think Jesus knew exactly what kind of conundrum he was stirring. And they're left with the same question as David. Well, then fine. Who can approach this God? That is the question we are all asking. But Jesus doesn't have them hanging out there hopelessly. He doesn't leave them out there without a solution because he says that he is the one who has come not to do away with or relax the law of God and lower God's standards, but Jesus has come to fulfill them. He is saying he himself is going to be the one to meet the perfect standards of God and then be the one who is worthy to approach God. He's saying that's going to be him. So that is the solution. That is what Jesus, who is God in the flesh, came to do. He came to fulfill perfectly the demands of the law of God. And David knew this. He knew that that day was coming even before Jesus came. This psalm is a prophetic psalm that is pointing forward to Jesus, pointing forward to God in the flesh, the second person of the Trinity, who, is, who he knew was going to be the one, and he's writing about who was going to be the one to come to fulfill the perfect holiness that he just listed out. That is why he continues in chapter 24, verse 5, he says this, He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation, such as the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. So where does this verse say we get our righteousness? From God. It says we get it from God. David is now teaching what Jesus, what we read Jesus taught a thousand years before Jesus even taught that. And you see this idea that we aren't righteous on our own and that we need somebody else to be righteous for us, that's not a new concept that was birthed in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul did not make that up. This is something that was taught from Genesis to Revelation as they were trying to solve the problem, who can approach this God? And he gives us even more, more detail about this answer. Because David wants us to look up and look outside of ourselves for this person. Because this person isn't any one of us. It isn't any ruler or political figure alive now or then or in any time in history. He tells us who to look to for this blessing of righteousness. He says, starting in verse 7, he says, Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord... Strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. And so David is gave, giving us this amazing imagery, personifying the gates and the doors of the tabernacle of God in the Old Testament, where God was dwelling with his people. So imagine this. So, so they're, they're trying to get the ark of the Lord into Jerusalem, okay? And it's a total failure, okay? So 
They go about it all wrong, and he caused them to ask this question, and then he realizes, oh, that's right. The king is going to be the one who leads us. The king of glory is going to be the one who does this, and he's going to be the one welcomed in. Well, guess what? So he's saying, so go ahead and open up, open up, lift up your heads. Open your eyes. Open the doors. Gates don't have heads. Doors don't have heads or eyes or the ability to open themselves up. We do. He's talking about us when he says this. He's saying, church, lift up your heads and your eyes and behold the king of glory who has come to fulfill all righteousness, the earth and, the, and all who live in it. Open up and receive him. Do you see the answer here in these verses? Who is able to ascend the hill of the Lord? Not us. God can. But what's fascinating about this passage is that God reverses the order here. Instead of waiting back and expecting an unworthy, unholy people to just get their act together and start climbing the hill, he says, lift up your heads, O gates. I God, I'm coming to you. I'm coming to make my dwelling place among you. He flips it around. And indeed, he did come to us. Remember, this is a prophetic psalm pointing forward to Jesus, the second coming of the second person of the Trinity, who is God in the flesh. He became man and dwelt among us. And he fulfilled perfectly the law of God for us. He met those requirements that David listed before. That is who this psalm is about. It's about Jesus. He is the one who is worthy. He is the one who is worthy to ascend the hill. The one who is worthy to approach God. Well, we know this. We know that this is what David, the psalmist, is talking about. Because John the author of the New Testament book of Revelation, the final book of the New Testament, he had the same question as David. Go figure. Who is worthy to approach this God? So I want us to look at what he says and look at this experience that he has in Revelation. He records in Revelation chapter 5. John says this, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll, written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break the seals? You see, the scrolls, they contain the secrets of the future, the final stage of Christ's redemptive work. And so in this setting, in this chapter, you have all creation gathering around, wanting to look in and see who is truly going to prove to be the one who is worthy? Who, the one who is worthy to be our redeemer. Who's going to be the one who is worthy to approach God? The one with clean hands. The one with a pure heart. The one who, is the, who has not lifted up his soul to what is false. The one who has not sworn deceitfully. And he goes on in verse 3. He says, And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly 
because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Do you see the despair John has here? He doesn't say, I'll do it. He knows better. Because he knows this moment of approaching God is profound. And that there is so much separation between him and a holy God that he is not the one who is worthy. None of the people looking into this moment raise their hand and volunteer. Because they behold the holiness and the majesty of our God. And John weeps. He weeps. What about for us now? Is there anyone who is worthy among us? It certainly isn't any political figure. It's not Joe Biden. It's not Donald Trump. It's not any political figure either here now or, or any leader in the world. Really. Definitely isn't me. I don't have clean hands and a pure heart on my own merit. I definitely don't think it's any one of you. <laughs> so who is worthy to approach God? John continues. He says, and one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though he had been slain. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, and when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which were the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed a people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked, he says, and I heard around the throne, and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud verse, with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures the, the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Church, Jesus is the Lamb who is worthy. He is the one who gives us the merit of clean hands and the merit of pure heart that we do not possess, so that we can be a people who are saved by his grace. And trust in him 
by faith and trust in his righteousness in order that now we can be, because of that righteousness, we can be a people who now approach God. So we can approach God. But it's only because of the righteousness and the holiness that God gives us through Jesus Christ. This is the good news. And this is the good news that, that, if you, that, that answers the question, who can approach a holy God? Because, because you don't ever have to ask this question again. Am I good enough for God? Because the answer is no. I'm sorry to let you down. But it's truly no. And Satan loves to tempt us in that way. He loves to pile up despair upon us. He loves to say, can you believe that? You are gross. You are so unworthy before a holy God. I remember reading once, I don't have this cited in here, but I do remember, come back to me if you want to know where this is at, come back to me in a week and I'll, I'll, I'll look it up. I remember reading once that Martin Luther, um, who lived 500 years ago, um, used to talk about the fact that, what, what, do you, what do you do when Satan comes and says, you're not righteous, you're not good enough for God? Well, first off, our propensity is to say, Oh, yeah, and it's crushing me. It's crushing me. So therefore, I am unworthy of salvation, and I indeed cannot be saved. Right? Well, Martin Luther reminds us, he says, no. What you do when Satan tempts you to despair in that way, you say, yeah, that's fine. I know. I know that I'm unworthy. I know that I don't have what it takes, but I know the one who does. And that person covers me with his righteousness. And he says, Satan will flee. It's the, the most fearful words for Satan is Jesus. I'm trusting in Jesus for my righteousness, for my holiness, not in myself. See, then you therefore can't believe the lies of Satan anymore. He's saying, strive no more. Be reminded that you are accepted by God because not because you are worthy or the one who possesses any of the traits that David mentions, but because of Jesus. So just a few weeks ago, um, Daniel, another pastor here on staff, he called me after sitting with a man who was on his deathbed. It was a guy from our church, and um, the, the, the man knew that he was just hours from, from dying. And he made a comment, and um, Daniel had the opportunity to remind him uh, of, of this truth. And it really struck with me. That's why I'm sharing, sharing this with you because it, it actually really, really impacted me and, and affected me. Um, this man asked Daniel, he said, oh, he made the statement, he said, I just hope I've done enough. So here's a man come to find out, no kidding, was just within hours of dying. And he's still asking the question and still wondering, the same question that David asks. The same question that John in the New Testament asks. Who can approach God? He's realizing, certainly not me. Hopefully I've done enough. 
And so, Dave, so Daniel told him in a very pastoral way, you haven't. You haven't done, done enough. <laughs> and that man felt great, found great comfort in that fact. Oh, yeah, that's right. He's being reminded of the gospel. He hasn't done enough. Neither have I. Neither have you. And Daniel reminded him, but Jesus has. That's who you're going to be following into the throne room right now. That's who. And Daniel's just called to, to reflect on it. It was a powerful moment. So he called me after and driving home and said, man, we just had this incredible moment. I just remember hearing this, and I'm, I found myself in the same place as John. I was weeping. I was in tears. I'm on the phone. I could hardly even muster up the next sentence to just, oh, wow. Daniel, I'm unworthy. Wow. What a reminder of who truly is worthy and who can make it possible for us to approach a holy God. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. I didn't want him to know I was weeping. Don't tell him. Earlier I quoted, uh, we'll close here, earlier I quoted from the Heidelberg Catechism, but I only read the first few words to answer the question. And the question, remember, was, what is your only comfort in life and in death? And I want to end by reading, actually, the whole answer, because it is a reminder of who we belong to and what it means for us to belong to the Savior. Because it offers us, this, this message, this, this, this gospel, offers us assurance because we are no longer, as David called us to do, we're no longer looking inward. We are now a people who lift up our heads and look outside of ourselves in order to be a people who are accepted by God and who are able to approach God. And so the Heidelberg Catechism answers the question, what is your only comfort in life and in death? And he says this, that I with body and soul, both in life and in death, am not my own but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood has fully satisfied for all my sins and delivered me from all the power of the devil and so preserves me that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready now on to live for him. Now that's assurance right there. We are kept in the hand of Jesus. We are kept in the hand of God to carry us into his presence so that we can truly approach a holy God. Church, we're forgiven and made pure and acceptable because of Jesus. Let's pray. Our God, this morning we do confess that we need you. We need your righteousness in order to stand before you. We are thankful that because of the work of Jesus, who is God in the flesh, we can be forgiven and declared righteous, declared holy before you. Let us this morning grow in the assurance of the salvation that you give to us. 
and be reminded once again that we can find our comfort and security in the fact that we are not worthy, but Jesus is, and we belong to Jesus. And Jesus has us safe in his hand and keeps us. Let us grow in that assurance this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.